Welcome to Philosophers on Medicine. Side effects include having your mind blown. I'm Jonathan Fuller. In recent years, physicians and health scientists have become increasingly concerned about overdiagnosis, the problem of diagnosing too many people as having a disease, be it breast or thyroid cancer, diabetes, or pulmonary embolism. When considering who or what is at fault, the list of suspects often includes overly expansive screening programs, increasingly sensitive diagnostic tests, and unnecessary test ordering. But should the list of the accused also include our definition of disease? And can philosophers studying disease concepts help to clear up our definition of disease, and even the problem of overdiagnosis itself? Today's consultation is with philosopher Mary Walker, research fellow in philosophy at Monash University. Mary Walker, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The topic we'll be discussing today is overdiagnosis and the definition of disease. So to get us started, what is overdiagnosis? So overdiagnosis is the diagnosis of a condition that is not harming and will not harm the patient who has it. And usually it ends up being a diagnosis that causes harm instead of preventing or ameliorating any harms that they're suffering. So this is something that's thought to occur fairly commonly for some kinds of conditions now. Things like type 2 diabetes and osteoporosis are thought to be overdiagnosed, and also a range of common cancers like breast cancer, prostate cancer, and thyroid cancer, among others. So, for example, it's a bit hard to quantify overdiagnosis, but it's thought that perhaps about a third of breast cancer diagnoses are actually overdiagnosis. So, these are cases where the person actually does have breast cancer, but if the cancer had never been found or treated, it would never have done them any harm or become clinically apparent in any way. It might have remained a small indolent cancer that's never made itself known, or it might have actually regressed on its own, for example. So the individual has the disease, but the disease isn't actually going to harm that, that person. That's right, yeah. I guess 40 odd years ago, it wasn't really known that cancers could even regress on their own, but it's becoming clear partly because of the evidence to do with overdiagnosis that this is possible and perhaps much more common than we would have thought because, of course, the cancers that are now overdiagnosed would never have been found without the kinds of sophisticated imaging technologies that we have now. How might overdiagnosis itself cause harm? I think it causes a range of different harms. So perhaps the main one is that it is a driver of overtreatment. So if we think that perhaps a third of, of women with breast cancer are overdiagnosed and those women are having lumpectomies or even chemo or other kinds of treatment that's unnecessary. In some places, thyroid cancer is overdiagnosed quite a lot. So in Korea, this is a big problem because they do screening over there. And in those cases, I mean, having your thyroid removed, that's a fairly intrusive treatment and the person has to then be on uh, replacement medications for the rest of their life. So these are, you know, they can be quite intrusive and burdensome treatments. But other than that, I think even when a patient doesn't receive an unnecessary treatment, there can be a harm from uh, being labelled with a disease. So we know from sociological and psychological studies that being told that you have a disease, even if you don't have to treat it or you decide not to treat it, this is a really stressful thing that makes people reevaluate their lives. I guess the other harm that's worth mentioning is at the societal level, just that if all of these resources are going on treatments that aren't needed, that's a big waste. Okay, so it certainly seems then that overdiagnosis is a pretty important problem for medicine and society. Why do you think that it's at least partly also a philosophical problem? Um, so overdiagnosis is partly a philosophical problem, I think, because because of the way that it shows us that disease is a little bit different than we thought it was. So the evidence for overdiagnosis shows us that there seems to be what they call a reservoir of subclinical disease that up until recently was, was never being found because it never needed to be found. 
uh, because it never caused any symptoms, it never caused any problems, and because it couldn't be clinically detected, say, by an examination by a doctor. So the fact that we're now finding out that these kinds of subclinical diseases are there, I think changes our concept of what disease means, and in a related way, what it means to be healthy and what it means to be normal. So I think most people operate with a kind of concept of disease that links the notion fairly closely to the concept of harm. Most of us would probably say that there can be harmless diseases, but in general, when we think that someone has a disease, we think that they need help, that we should do something about it, that disease is something we want to prevent or cure. And so overdiagnosis is, I think, disrupting some of those links and making us change how we think about these things. Philosophers of medicine have been concerned with studying our definitions or concepts of disease and related uh, concepts for quite some time, but not necessarily in response to the issue of overdiagnosis. They've had other, perhaps related or sometimes different, interests. But for most philosophers of medicine who have tried to examine our concept of disease, what have been their typical aims in pursuing that project? So if something gets, gets counted as a disease, that means that the person who has it is entitled to certain things. So depending on where you are in the world, um, you might be entitled to treatment that's provided to you free of charge, for example. And you'd also typically be entitled to things like time off work, various kinds of social support, and so on and so forth. And then thinking about it just on a, a sort of interpersonal level, if someone has a disease, they tend to be treated differently. They get, to put it, to use slightly philosophical jargon or the jargon of the social sciences, someone gets entitled to be in the sick role. So they're thought to be someone who is suffering, where that suffering isn't really their fault. And that changes how they get treated interpersonally as well as institutionally in society. So we can see this historically with conditions that are usually now considered diseases, like addiction is an example I often think about, where the idea that addiction is a disease is often presented as a reason to treat people who have problems with various substances differently, say perhaps we would want to treat them rather than punishing them or charging them with drug offences. Or you can think about examples that used to be considered diseases and are no longer diseases. So things like masturbation was considered a disease at one point, or homosexuality similarly was considered a mental disorder for a while by some. And in that kind of categorization too, that seems to be a case where those counting those as diseases was hugely problematic in a whole range of ways. The way I read the debate, I think this is usually what concerns philosophers, that we want to try and get this category right, because it's one that relates so strongly to our practical concerns. In your view, how does our current concept of disease in medicine perhaps promote overdiagnosis? I actually think that our current notion of disease is not a very clear one. So it's, it's fairly vague in general, and it's quite easy to apply it to new things or to argue that it shouldn't be applied to things it's usually applied to. It's quite a flexible concept in some ways. So I think that this vagueness in the concept is really what contributes to overdiagnosis. And it's partly because... Overall, we do tend to link our notion of disease pretty strongly with the idea of harm. Um, and in fact, some philosophers have argued that this is an essential component of the concept. But at the same time, we also link the concept of disease quite strongly to the presence of some kind of physiological abnormality, some kind of problem, something biological going wrong. And this is where overdiagnosis gets interesting because it starts to split apart these two main sort of features of disease. So as, as technologies for imaging and various other tests have advanced, we've come to find that very few of us are actually free of abnormalities. Very few of us are actually normal, biologically speaking. There was one excellent paper that concluded that the average person has 3.4 abnormalities, I think. So I think the fact that there's a physiological thing 
that we can point to, that we would normally link to disease, makes us think that there's a disease there, even though perhaps it's not a harmful one. So I think that there's these advances in, well, in medical science that, that, that draw on our usual concept of disease to imply that more things are disease, and really we would want to intervene in. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that our current definition of disease is somewhat vague with fuzzy borders, and because that concept relies partly on the idea of physiological dysfunction, as technology improves and we're able to find more dysfunctions in the body, because our disease concept is fuzzy in that sense, we could just easily lump in those new findings of dysfunction into that category so it seems that category is expanding with the advance of technology. Yeah, and I mean, in some ways, the idea of a physiological dysfunction is not exactly a clear one either, but it's a little bit clearer than the idea of a harm or the idea of a state being undesirable. It's something we can point to and say, you know, there's a little lump or there's a blood pressure reading or a blood sugar reading that is a little bit different than we think it should be. And that just tends to be indicative of a disease a little bit too quickly. In order to address this issue of overdiagnosis uh, with Wendy Rogers, who developed a precising definition of disease. So what do you mean by that? What's a precising definition? So a precising definition is a definition that seeks to make a vague or unclear or general concept more precise in relation to some particular purpose or other. You often see them, I guess, in law, but in other areas as well. So just to give a kind of stock example, most of us think of the term city as a sort of fairly large metropolis, lots of people in it. But the term is still a vague one because I might count an area with, say, anything over about 50,000 people to be a city, but maybe you would only call that a town. And for you, maybe a city has to have 500,000 people or, or something like that. So the idea of a precising definition is just would just be to say that for some particular purpose, let's just call a city anything with over 100,000 people. And we might have some reason to do that. Maybe there's a government regulation that says that you know, cities get, get to have certain government resources for public transport or something like that. And in that case, we'd need to have a way of saying, well, what's a city and what isn't? So we might just stipulate a certain number. So a precising definition is always a stipulative one, but it's always a definition that happens in relation to a particular purpose, a particular interest that we have. Okay, so what's your precising definition of disease to help combat overdiagnosis? So we've proposed a precising definition that seeks to limit what gets counted as disease, basically to slightly narrow how we think about disease. So the one that we've come up with, which is kind of a work in progress, is to say that diseases are states that are physiological dysfunctions that have a significant probability of causing severe harm. We refer to it as disease ODX to differentiate it from disease as the, the general concept of disease. ODX meaning overdiagnosis. That's right, yeah. 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 Okay, so let me see. There are the three components that I picked up there. There's still the idea of physiological dysfunction. There's the idea that there has to be a severe harm and not just any risk of a severe harm, but a significant risk. So there's at least three concepts there that themselves might be in need of explication. So you do your best to give us an account of what you mean by dysfunction, what you mean by severe harm, and what you mean by significant risk. Sure. And as I said, this is somewhat of a work in progress that we're trying to test against practical uh, examples in various ways. But so to start with dysfunction, um, we mean here what, what I was calling before uh, physiological abnormalities. So something biological, something physiological that we can point to and say that that part of the body isn't functioning in the way that it normally does or in the way that it should. And there's different ways we can understand all of these concepts. 
But I think this is a, a fairly well-known idea sort of in medical sciences. So this component of the definition is just meant to pick out whatever it is that's gone wrong with someone's body that makes us think that they might have a disease. So this is kind of a delimiting part of the definition and the other criteria are then meant to narrow it further. So next, uh, severe harm we mean here harms that impinge on what we've called welfare interests following uh, the philosopher Joel Feinberg who's a legal philosopher. Um, so a welfare interest is an interest in something that helps us pursue our various other interests. So it's things like interests in being mobile, in being free from terrible pain, interests in being around others, these sorts of basic things that we want. So a harm that impinges on these kinds of interests will tend to be a quite serious kind of harm, because once these kinds of interests are impinged upon, there's usually follow-in effects. So for instance, if I was to suffer a disease that lowered my mobility, that made me less able to be mobile, that would be kind of a bad thing for me, but it would also potentially lead to other things that I'm interested in being impinged upon. So I might not have the same choices I had before about work, or I might not be able to run that marathon, or whatever it is. So the idea here, it's still a little, um, we sort of don't want it to be too hard and fast, but we're trying to limit what gets counted as a disease for the particular purpose of combating overdiagnosis to more severe harms. And then the third criterion is, so it's in there because it's not just current harm that we want to treat. It's not just, we don't just want to step in and treat diseases when they're actually harming the person. We also, of course, want to prevent harms. So to include this in the definition, we refer to significant probability of severe harm occurring. This is perhaps, I guess, the most difficult part of the definition. How exactly we tell what level of probability counts as significant. And so Wendy and I have worked this through in relation to a few different conditions. And we've come to the conclusion that there's no particular level of probability that we can say is always significant. It's always a bit different with a different condition. It might also be a little bit different for different individuals. So we think that how significant a probability is depends on a bunch of different contextual factors, which might include things like how severe the harms are, so whether the harm is um, premature death or whether it's just, say, reduced mobility or something like that, which is still a severe harm but less severe than premature death. But also things like how likely it is that the person would be harmed by a treatment if that treatment is unnecessary. So these sorts of things are going to be quite different with different conditions and they need to be carefully worked through in relation to each case. And that's what we've been trying to do to sharpen up the definition itself further. Why instead wouldn't we simply think more carefully about what the probability of risk is and how severe the harms are that we're trying to avoid in each particular case and let those concepts as well as perhaps the concept of dysfunction do the work for us in the particular case why do we need to bother with defining a concept of disease and then tying that concept to treatment? Why can't we just think about the concepts of severe harm and significant risk? Why do we need to bother with the concept of disease at all? Yeah, so this is something we've grappled with as well. And I think there's something to this idea. But in doing this work on overdiagnosis, I've actually become convinced that the labels are quite important. What we call things is important and does have real effects. So while, you know, if we could achieve it all without worrying about is this a disease or not, how do we label this condition, then great. But I've just come to think that that's a bit unrealistic. So my reasons for this are partly to do with the psychology of what it is to be told you have a disease. So, you know, if I received a diagnosis of cancer, um, and then was told, oh, but it's only a small one, it probably won't harm you, don't worry about it. I, I would worry about it. And given the opportunity to treat it, I would probably take it. And most people are, are cautious in this respect, understandably. 
So it's funny, when you look at the, the studies, people will accept really quite severe harms from treatment in order to avoid harms from disease, even when they know that the harms of the treatment are much worse than the disease. And it seems to be partly to do with those harms being more predictable and more controllable. But it really makes a difference to people's thinking in a way that is perhaps not quite rational. But if it was me, I, I would do the same thing. So I think it's some kind of precaution or some kind of wanting to avoid regret in case the outcomes aren't quite what you thought they were of the disease. So that's one side of it. I mean, another side of it is that there are regulations and there are systemic problems that are contributing to overdiagnosis and how the labels play into that is also quite important. So just to sort of basic point would be, um, you know, doctors can be sued if they find something and they decide not to treat it and something bad happens to that patient, they can be sued, but they can't be sued for overtreating in the same kind of way. So yeah, that's just one example. There are other sorts of, it's a bit different in different places, but there are often sort of incentives for doctors to treat more of a certain thing or to treat things in a certain way that can in a way really interfere with what would be the best clinical judgment of an experienced clinician. And, and the labels really play into that quite heavily. If the problem of overdiagnosis is driven, at least in part, by development of new, more sensitive imaging tests and technologies that can pick up more cases of dysfunction, let's say. Can we solve the problem of overdiagnosis then by increasing the accuracy of our diagnostic tests so that there are fewer false positives, as well as educating physicians to order fewer unnecessary tests? Will that alone get the job done? No, I don't think so. Although, I mean, I think all of those things would be good steps. But so improving our diagnostic screening tests, our imaging tests, is actually one of the things that's driving overdiagnosis. So making them better is actually sort of one of the things that's causing the problems. And in a way, we actually want less knowledge. It's a funny sort of problem because it's kind of a problem of too much knowledge, having this knowledge that we don't really know what to do with. So that said, there are a few cases where improvements in our medical knowledge would certainly help. So in relation to cancers, there could be, say, new tests developed that help us differentiate which are going to be really aggressive and which ones are not. And that would help remove the problem of epidiagnosis by telling us which ones to treat. But I think there's always, and I say this as someone who's a philosopher and with me rather than a medical person, but my understanding is that there'll always be some uncertainty about how any disease is going to go. So, so there might be a dysplastic growth that could turn out to be a relatively indolent cancer or could go along a more aggressive path and that might be down to whether or not there's some particular kind of chance mutations along the way. So I think there's always going to be some kind of uncertainty there. So there's always going to be a problem of overdiagnosis that rides along on that uncertainty. That said though, yeah, if we can improve our tests then we should do that too. And again, you know, it would be great if doctors could order less uh, unnecessary tests, that would be a good thing for many reasons. But we don't always know which ones are unnecessary, and sometimes we do the tests because of that uncertainty. So I don't think that can be a complete answer. I suppose also, in order to reduce the number of false positive tests, we have to be clear on what counts as a true positive test, and that relies in part on understanding what counts as a particular instance of that disease, and then indirectly what counts as a disease. So might that be another way in which we have to get clear on our disease concept before we can even begin to tackle this problem of overdiagnosis. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. So working on our usual concepts, an overdiagnosis is quite different to a false positive. So because with overdiagnosis, there is actually something there that we're picking up, whereas a false positive is just where the test is not sensitive enough or there's some kind of mistake goes on in it. So that we're told that there's something there when there's not. 
But I guess in a way, if we apply the precising definition, then the overdiagnosed case becomes a kind of false positive case in a sense. Yeah, so it makes the two problems a bit closer together. Well, you've certainly helped with precising my understanding of the issue, so thanks very much. Thank you. To hear more Philosophers on Medicine, visit www.philosophersonmedicine.com or find us on iTunes or Google Play.